Thank you, Sue. By now you know that was not Chuck. And since Sue sang special music, you knew it was Sue. So thank you, Sue, for sharing. Out of the book of Hebrews, we hear the story that we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 to 22. And uh, I entitled it, Go for Broke. And I think you'll understand as we... Okay, yeah, I know it was bad, but um, uh, you'll understand as we get to verse 22 as well about this Go for Broke. But... Um, let me just begin with this. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries. <clears throat> they purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved and everything they knew. They knew they would never return home. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrids in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe and loved them. When he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came... There was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Wow. What a powerful testimony, isn't it? He thought he was just going to go there to have his head taken off, right? And die. But 35 years of ministry. You know, he went for broke, didn't he? He went all in. He didn't stop. He wasn't fearful. He knew in whose hands he could rest. And so when I think about this going all in or going for broke, um, Judy and I, uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, started a diet together. She read a book about living good daily, and it included recipes and an exercise regimen. And uh, I was already riding my stationary bike every morning for about a half an hour and walking about two miles in the evening. And, and so I thought, well, the healthy eating, I should start to lose weight. And, and in the book, it mentioned cardio, that cardio was not necessarily helpful in producing weight loss. Well, that's exactly what I was experiencing. Because I was thinking, well, now with the diet, you know, the really good diet, I should start losing weight. I wasn't losing weight. And um, I w the book recommended a 10-minute high-intensity interval training workout. And I just was like, you can't do anything in 10 minutes. There's no way. This is ridiculous. Okay, so the diet's great, but this exercise thing, pff. And so I just was skeptical, and I just resisted for a long time. And finally, Judy was like, you're not losing weight. Why don't you just try it? All right. So I started doing this 10-minute workout, and within a couple of weeks, I started dropping pounds. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't have to ride a bike for a half an hour and walk for like 45 minutes in the evening. I just have to do a 10-minute hit workout in the morning. And so I did. I started doing that. And, you know, it was, um, I had to go for broke, right? I had to go all in, combining the healthy eating with the 10-minute hit workout. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't just do part of it and expect to, to see any results. I knew things were headed in the right direction when one of my sons came up behind me one day and grabbed my sides and said something about my love handles being gone. We call them jelly rolls, by the way. That's what we call the love handles, it's jelly rolls. And he goes, your jelly rolls are gone. I'm like, yes, they are. <laughs> I was so excited. But I had to follow the entire recommended plan from that book before I started seeing results. I had to go for broke. Every one of us probably has an example of when we went all out for something, right? 
And I want you to think about that scenario for a moment this morning and to answer a couple of questions in your mind. What, what was trying to be accomplished when you went all out? What sacrifices were made in order to see results? Is it something that's still happening today? In Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 to 22, Noah is going to receive two announcements and two instructions from the Lord. The announcements center around the destruction of the world and how it will happen. The instructions will tell Noah to build an ark and then who and what to fill it with. We'll see that Noah obeys completely. And through this passage today, we're going to learn that God provides mercy amidst discipline. And so let's pray and just commit it to the Lord today. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you that you are a merciful God. That even in the midst of discipline, and even, even when you have to punish us, Lord God, you are merciful in the way that you do it. And Lord, I, I just thank you that uh, through your mercy, you don't give us what we do deserve. So, Lord, because we, we are sinners. We have rebelled against you. I pray today that as we study this passage of Scripture, that you would allow that, that big idea to sink deep within our hearts and minds that it would transform us. That, Lord, as we talk about next steps today, that you would empower us to, to be obedient. And so we commit ourselves to you now, and we ask that you would speak through your servant, that we might hear your words. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at uh, the first cycle of this uh, announcement and then instruction. We see it in verses 13 to 16. And I... This is uh, this point I just entitled construction. This is what God's word says. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. <clears throat> this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle, lower, middle, and upper decks. <clears throat> and so this is God just really giving his plan. This is the announcement that he's doing. He says he gives his plan. He tells Noah that he's going to uh, put an end to all people. God's plan is inclusive. You know, they talk about that. That's a term today that everybody, you know, we need to be inclusive, not exclusive. Um, and so we need to include everybody. Well, God did that. Here, he's like, no one will escape the coming punishment, of course, except Noah and his family. And God's destruction doesn't just include people, but animals and the earth itself. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our sin is not done in a void. Our sin it doesn't just affect us, it affects our family, our, 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 our neighbors, our co-workers perhaps, you know, other people. And here we see that it's affecting not only the animals, but it's also affecting the earth, the, the physical earth itself. Now, we may not realize that it's doing that. And, of course, we don't think that it's doing that, but that's exactly what's happening. And so the Lord's telling Noah that the earth is filled with violence and that violence has corrupted the animals and the earth, too. And we know this to be true because of what we see with Adam and his punishment. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, we read these words. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and to dust you will return. So it's like here, you know, the ground is cursed because of sin, because of humanity's sin. And Paul reminds the Roman believers that the earth is corrupt because of humanity's sin. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. It's like the, the earth is under decay because of the sin of humanity. So our sin affects not just us, but so much more. The, and here, Matthews in his commentary says, The Lord is not acting impulsively or selfishly, but in moral outrage against the reprehensible conduct of that generation. So we have to understand that today. That's an important principle here. God's not doing this out of selfishness. He's not doing it impulsively. You know, he's, he's waited a long time to bring this judgment. And he's doing it out of moral outrage. He's like, I, the world can't continue this way. There has to be some punishment for this sin, and it's corrupted the entire earth now. And we see God's reason. God explains his reason behind destroying all of humanity and the earth because it was filled with violence because of humanity. Gango and Bramer say nature is intimately connected with mankind. God had given Adam and Eve and all of humanity by default the authority to rule over the animals and the earth. And that rule had become corrupt and violent, so the Lord had to destroy all people and the earth. Now here's a, a principle that is hard for us sometimes to really wrap our heads around, and it's the fact that God is just. And the reason we struggle with that is because... Um, well, first let me say that this means that God is always fair and that he is, always makes the right decision. I know sometimes we don't feel that way, do we? In our humanness, we don't feel that way. We may not understand God's justice, but we can trust that it is fair and right. Many people struggle with God's justice because they don't like to think about the negative, the judgment, the punishment, the pain, the hurt, the loss, they say that they can't believe in or follow a God who is so violent. They see his punishment as hatred instead of moral outrage. It's like God just hates people, right? He's just looking out for a way that he can catch him doing wrong so he can just destroy him. That's not who God is. The only, they only want to see God as loving and accepting of everyone. And it's just bold of us as, as humans to believe that we as finite, sinful people know better than God, who is infinite, sinless deity. It's arrogant for us to claim that we know better than God, who is all-knowing. God knows our heart, the part of us that thinks and feels, and he's able to judge us correctly and fairly. And so the first part of the announcement is that the Lord is going to destroy people in the earth, including the animals. The Lord doesn't just announce judgment, though. He instructs Noah concerning his plan to rescue the earth and restore humanity. We see that in verses 14 to 16, and it goes right along with our second principle today, that God is merciful. So he's just, but he's also merciful. He provides mercy amidst discipline. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And perhaps we all have experienced mercy from a parent, a boss, a teacher, uh, an administrator, a principal, or someone else. Every one of us has done wrong in the past. We're all sinners. We're born that way. And when we get caught or we confess on our own, our hope is that the, the person who is in authority over us will extend grace and mercy to us. Isn't that true? Oh, please. 
Our hope is that they will give us something we don't deserve, which is grace, and not give us what we do deserve, which is mercy. So in a work setting, we hope that our boss will not fire us, right? But give us a second chance. We made a mistake, and we're like, oh, no. And, and you, get that, you get that message, so-and-so report to the office, you know. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> i got to go to the office. And you go down there, whether you're a student or whether you're, uh, you know, an employee, and you're wondering what's going on. And they're like, hey, you know, we noticed that uh, you did this one thing, and that goes against policy or something like that, and, you, and you're like, I am so sorry. And we're hoping that the next words out of their mouth is, it's going to be okay. We're going to give you a second chance. We're going to give you some more training so you don't do that kind of stuff again. And, um, and they, they send you back to work. Of course, we realize that there's times where people go into that situation, and they're like, yeah, we, we can't keep you in employment anymore. And you're released. God is providing mercy and a second chance for the earth and humanity through Noah and his family. And so the Lord gives Noah instructions about building an ark. Now, this is interesting. <clears throat> I always find it interesting that it, in the commentaries I've been reading, it says the Hebrew word for ark is used 14 times in Genesis, and this is like the first time it's used. Yeah, we're in the beginning of the Bible, right? We're in Genesis. If we're going to hear this again. There's another word that this is going to use, and this is the first time it's been used. Of course, we're in Genesis. I mean, why do they have to make that obvious statement. I don't know, but they do. So he, uh, the Hebrew word for ark is used 14 times in Genesis, seven times in the construction passage that we're looking at today, and then seven more times in the passage where they're going to talk about the water subsiding in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. The only other place in the, in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word is used is Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And this is the story about baby Moses and how his mother uh, saved him from Pharaoh's order to have all Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile. Moses' mother got a papyrus basket or a reed basket. That's the Hebrew word for ark. And she covered it in tar and pitch and put Moses in it. Now, we're not going to go into all the similarities between the Noah story and the Moses story, but there's tons of them. They are both saved out of the water in an ark, covered in pitch. And it just goes on and on and on. There, and, and if you want to know, I can give you the commentaries to read. There's all kinds of similarities between those two stories and what God's trying to accomplish. And so we see that the wood that is used here has been given two names in our modern translations, cypher or gopher wood. There's the, where the gopher broke comes from. Um, the reason for the two names is because the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. This is the only occurrence of this Hebrew word in all of Scripture. So we don't have another context with which to go, oh, it is gopher wood. What is gopher wood? <laughs> it's just some rare wood, perhaps. But cypress wood would be a good guess since we know that it was used by shipbuilders in ancient times as a rot-resistant wood. So that's a good guess. That's probably why most modern translations say cypress wood. Now, pitch, we don't have any idea what this what the makeup of pitch was. Um, obviously, some kind of probably tarry, sticky substance that they smeared on the inside and outside of this thing to make it waterproof. God not only told Noah what materials to use, he also gave him the dimensions and the layout. It's to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, 45 feet high. So to kind of help you this morning with those dimensions, because it's like, well, that, okay, those are great measurements, but I really, how do I compare that? It's one and a half football fields long. And a football field is actually 180 feet across, <clears throat> 90 feet to halfway, it was 75 feet wide, if that helps you. And 45 feet high, that's just really high. It's about our gym, 
probably a little bit higher than the gym. But I like this one too, because like, what is, how does it compare to modern ships or ships within our, well, not our lifetime, but um, so you see the Santa Maria, it was a little tiny wooden ship, and then is it the Montgomery? Wyoming, sorry, wrong one. Wyoming is another wooden ship, and then you have the Titanic, and then the Queen Mary. Yeah, Queen Mary too. Okay, I didn't have them all memorized. So that kind of gives you an idea um, of modern ships too, how big the ark was, and I hope that's helpful for you uh, as you think about this. It was most likely a flat-bottomed barge-like boat that was designed for flotation and not navigation. We don't know, we don't hear anything about a rudder or sails. So it's like Noah's not up here, you know, he's not like driving all over the earth or, or navigating all over the earth. It's just kind of floating around and God's in control. He's the one who's, who's carrying them along through this storm. <clears throat> they just have to rely on the Lord. And this is true for us today as we go through life's storms. We can trust God by faith to carry us through, to be our navigator. We can leave it in God's hands and watch him do the miraculous. So I want to encourage you with that today. He did it for Noah, he can do it for you. So now we know the dimensions of the ark, but what else do we know about it? We know the layout, don't we? It was to have a roof over it, and the reference to completing it to within 18 inches of the top is probably to allow for ventilation and light. It was also a way for Noah to release the birds after the flood waters had started to had stopped rising and started to subside. That way he knew when they could open the ark and get out. The door was to be on the side to allow for the loading of the ark. And we know that God is the one who shut the door once everything was inside. We'll see that in coming weeks. There are to be three levels to the ark, the lower, middle, and upper decks. The dimensions for the decks are, are not given in Scripture. They're probably just, we can know what it, what it perhaps looked like from shipbuilding in the ancient Near East and what they would have done, how they would have constructed that, but we don't really have any details. But what's incredible here is that in the midst of all of this, God provides wisdom and guidance. Isn't that a great principle? He, he'll do the same thing for us. He provides mercy amidst discipline, and with this, his mercy, he also provides wisdom and guidance to accomplish his purposes. He gave Noah specific instructions on how to build an ark that would preserve he and his family's lives and the lives of a pair of animals of every kind. And God can and will do the same for us. As someone who was righteous before God and blameless among his peers, Noah knew that he could count on God to provide Wisdom and guidance as he faced the total destruction of humanity and the world. Now, we're not facing that. We're not facing the total destruction of humanity and the world, but the storms in our life can be very overwhelming and difficult to navigate. What are some of those storms? There might be educational challenges that we're dealing with. Like, I cannot get this class. I just don't understand this class. Math is not my thing, right? Some of us are like, English is not my thing. Some of us are like, math and English are not my thing, right? School is not my thing. And so we have these educational struggles, and we look at it as a storm in our life. There can be relational challenges with family members or friends or neighbors or coworkers that we might be wrestling with. There might be financial challenges like the loss of a job or unexpected bill or more bills than money at the end of the month, Right? And we can wrestle through those. There might be health challenges like no insurance or not enough insurance or medical debt or chronic pain or upcoming surgeries. We have all these things. And then we have the spiritual challenges that are going on in our lives as well. Like we're doubting God. Does he even exist? Does he even care? Is, does he hear my prayers? We're questioning our faith because perhaps someone heard us who claimed to be a follower of Christ. Or we see all these, these, uh, these pastors 
that are failing morally, and we're like, I don't know if I want to be a part of that group. And so we're questioning, and we have these spiritual challenges. And as we pursue holiness, which would allow us to be righteous and blameless before God, we will know that we can trust God to provide wisdom and guidance through those storms. God will provide just what we need right when we need it. He'll provide next steps and support through his word, through prayer, through other people. And so we can just claim this uh, first next step today, and that's to trust the Lord to provide wisdom and guidance through the difficult storm I'm experiencing. Maybe you're in the midst of it right now, and you can trust God. He's going to provide for you. He's going to give you wisdom and guidance through it as you, as you seek his face, as you cry out to him. Now, this concludes the first cycle of announcement and instruction, and what we see next is additional information concerning the first announcement and instruction. The same information is communicated again, but with more details and additional information. <clears throat> so let's look at verses 17 to 21, which I'm calling covenant. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Every, uh, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And so we see this covenant with this announcement. The Lord announces again that he's going to destroy uh, all life, everything that has breath of life in it. That would include humans and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. The creatures in the water would be safe because, well, frankly, more water is not going to be a problem for them. Right? It's like, oh, now there's too much water. What are we going to do? No, they got to explore some areas that they hadn't gotten to explore beforehand, right? <laughs> All these mountains, like, check this out, oh my. Uh, they probably didn't do that. But, um, but anyhow, more water's not going to be a problem for them, so they don't have to be on the ark. And uh, as in uh, verse 13, as, as we see in verse 13, we see the justice of a God again here. And the way in which the Lord was going to destroy all the earth is now mentioned it gives more information and more detail to verse 13. He's going to use floodwaters on the earth. And we're not going to spend time today explaining how that happened because we're going to see that in chapter 7. But verses 18 to 21, we see additional information about how God will extend his mercy in order to accomplish his plan. This is the instruction part that he gives to, to know. He says, I'm going to make a covenant. This is the first time in the Old Testament, here it is, that the Hebrew word for covenant is used. Makes sense. Or in Genesis. A covenant is an agreement between individuals who already have a relationship and involves both obligations and benefits. So this, that's what a covenant is. It's like people that already have a relationship, and there's certain responsibilities there, certain uh, things that are, uh, that are going to be a benefit to uh, both parties. And I like the marriage relationship as an example of this. In most cases, aside from arranged marriages, there's a period of time when a man and a woman get to know each other. What's that time called? We call it dating, right? Or courting. One of those two. Then there's a, a commitment phase. When the man asks the woman to marry him, we call that what? Engagement, right? So they're getting to know each other more. They're, they're becoming more connected and bonded to each other. And then finally there is the covenant ceremony which binds the man and the woman together, which is their wedding day. 
And before the covenant ceremony, a relationship's already been established. And hopefully this, this man and woman have discussed their expectations concerning obligations and benefits within the marriage relationship. I help them to do that through premarital counseling. That's important. And so we see these obligations and, and benefits that are coming out of this covenant relationship. And that's what Noah had. Noah already had a relationship. He already had a commitment to the Lord. That's why he was found righteous and blameless. And there were two basic covenants in the ancient Near East, as Gangle and Bramer point out. There's the parity covenant, which was between equals, like Abraham and Abimelech, or Isaac and Abimelech, or Jacob and Laban. If, if you need to know the story there, Jacob and Laban, you know, he goes and, and works for seven years for uh, Rachel and, and is given Leah on his wedding night. And so he works another seven years. This is a covenant he's making with Laban in order to, to get Rachel, which is who he thought he was getting the first time. <laughs> so that's a, a covenant, this suzerainty covenant. Um, and so, uh, I'm sorry, that's the parity covenant. The suzerainty covenant is the second one. And this was a covenant between a superior and an inferior, like a, a king and the vassals. And we see this in Genesis 15, 18, with God and Abraham, uh, in Exodus 19, it's called the Mosaic Covenant with uh, God and the nation of Israel. And then here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, between God and Noah. Warren Wearsby says, God is faithful to keep his promises. And as God's covenant people, the eight believers had nothing to fear. You see, because God provides mercy amidst discipline. Isn't that wonderful to know? And so we see the filling of the ark next. We're told that Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives would be on the ark and safe from the floodwaters. This was God's benefit as part of the covenant that he had made. God's obligation was to protect them and sustain them during the flood. And part of the obligation for Noah's family was to take care of the animals and to gather the necessary food for the ark. Noah was to bring two of every kind of living creature into the ark, every kind of bird, animal, and creature that moves along the ground. And the pair were to be male and female, which would be important after the flood so that they could repopulate the earth. Noah and his family were to keep them alive. I found that interesting. That kind of hopped out at me, uh, popped out at me, I should say. Uh, when I was reading it this time, it was like, you guys are supposed to keep these, these animals alive. <laughs> I was like, eh, you better. That would be a problem afterwards. Again, that was another part, important part for after the flood. All of the animals or creatures in the birds would come to Noah. Isn't that great? Are you familiar with Evan Almighty, the movie? It's a, a kind of a parody on Noah's Ark, but, uh, you know, this guy, he's uh, what, running for political office or something like that, and all of a sudden, these animals just start showing up <laughs> at his office, and he's, you know, they're filling up his office and everything. And the same was happening with Noah. They, he and his family didn't have to go out and set traps and, and capture a male and a female of each of the kinds of animals and birds and creatures that crawl on the ground. God sent them to them. And in we see God's faithfulness in this, but we see his sovereignty as well. That's incredible. I, I know someone asked me one time, how can you believe that, that, you know, that, that God just sent the animals to, to Noah? I'm like, I, I don't know how it happened, but I believe that it did because that's who God is. I and mean, he's all powerful. I don't question that. And then they were to, they needed food during their stay on the ark, obviously. And another obligation for Noah and his family was the gathering of food for themselves and the animals. And so uh, uh, 
in reading some commentaries for this message, you know, they were talking about the fact that the number of animals, and they're guesstimating how many there were at this time, would not have filled up all of the square footage on the ark. Well, that makes sense because they had to put the food somewhere, right? You know, there's, so there was, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah, there, there was a certain, I don't know how many thousands of species of animals at that point, and they were taking two each of those, but then there was room for the food to be stored as well. And so the covenant between God and Noah required that Noah do a couple of things. Build an ark, fill it with animals and food. And then in verse 22, we see that Noah obeyed. This third point is compliance. Look at verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. God could count on Noah. We see Noah's character once again in this fourth principle. God is pleased when his people obey completely. Noah's righteousness is evident through his obedience. God knew that he could trust Noah to complete everything he had commanded him to do. And the question for us today is, how about us? Can God trust us and count on us to complete everything he's commanded us to do? Corporately, he's commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. He did this with his disciples right before he ascended to heaven. We see it in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, and Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's Matthew 28. He's going to be with us in order to help us accomplish what he's commanded us to do. So how are we doing as a body of believers at Idaville Church? I'm looking forward to the revival services to see how God's going to work supernaturally in the lives of those he is drawing. But he's using us to invite them to be here. I encourage you, pick up invitations today. Pick up posters today. Individually, he uses us to accomplish his commission as a body. So who are the six people you're praying for that will come to the revival services? If you haven't started that, I encourage you to start now. Is God prompting you to share the gospel with someone even now? You don't have to wait till the revival service. If he's prompting you to share the gospel, then you need to be obedient. <clears throat> Has God called you to be a missionary or a pastor? Or are you in the phase that I was for 13 years? I don't know, God. I don't think I want to be a pastor. So what's he calling you to? Is there someone who is lonely or in need that God has been prompting you to reach out to and help? So have we been obedient to God's commands for us? The second next step this morning is this, and that's to be obedient to do everything that God has commanded me to do. As we review today, <clears throat> are you trusting God to provide guidance and wisdom through the difficult storm that you're experiencing right now? And then will you obediently do everything that God has commanded you to do? The reason that's important is because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Those individuals that we're praying for for salvation, they're not guaranteed tomorrow. These people, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, humanity, one other scripture in the New Testament says that they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were celebrating. They were eating and drinking. They were they're having a grand old time. And then this flood came <clears throat> and wiped them out. In the 1880s, if you wanted a good life with a good job, you moved to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Main Line Canal came through town, so that brought jobs. So did the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Cambria Iron Works. Families were moving in from Wales, from Germany, not to mention there, 
uh, there are beautiful mountains covered with forest all around town. <clears throat> and right through the town runs the Connemaw River. In fact, the area is so beautiful, the country's richest people at the time in the 1800s, Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon, would come out from Pittsburgh to hunt and fish at a private club up above town where an old earth dam had been modified to make a fishing lake for them. <coughs> On May 30th, 1889, a huge rainstorm came through and dropped six to ten inches of rain. Despite that weather, the next day the town lined up along Main Street for the Memorial Day parade. The Methodist pastor, H.L. Chapman, said, The morning was delightful. The city was in its gayest mood with flags, banners, and flowers everywhere. The streets were more crowded than we had ever seen them before. And then the old dam... Miles above town collapsed, releasing almost 4 billion gallons of water. When that wall of water and debris hit Johnstown 57 minutes later, it was 60 feet high and traveling at 40 miles an hour. People tried to escape by running toward high ground, but 2,000 of the 30,000 people in town died. Some bodies were found as far away as Cincinnati, and some were not discovered until 20 years later. Wow. The Johnstown flood remains one of the greatest tragedies in American history behind only the Galveston hurricane and the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And in every one of those cases, <clears throat> life was fine until it wasn't. In a moment, in a way that was unexpected and most people were not prepared for, something cataclysmic occurred and people were swept away. That's exactly what was going to happen or what we're going to see happening to all of humanity and aren't you glad that Noah went all in, that he went for broke and built this ark out of gopher wood or whatever kind of what it was, so that God could not only restore humanity, but he could also save the earth. And boy, I'm so glad. You know, the amazing thing about this whole flood narrative is Noah never speaks. He never speaks. He just obediently does what God tells him to do. And that's what we need to do. We need to be obedient to what God calls us to do. Oh, as, we, um, just, as we just contemplate this this morning, would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer and then we'll worship the Lord together. Lord, we just come to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that, um, that you provide mercy amidst discipline. We thank you that we saw that in this today, that even though you were going to destroy the entire earth, <clears throat> that you provided mercy and allowing Noah and his family to be saved and two of every animal. And so, Lord, um, we just worship you today for that. We just ask, Lord, that you would help us to just not take that lightly but to really allow it to sink into our hearts and minds. Help us to recognize your mercy. And Lord, we just commit ourselves to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.